Well, hello, this is Hear Her Sports, the podcast of long-form, intimate profiles of female athletes breaking boundaries, speaking up, and living with power and confidence. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. Thank you for listening. I am really, really glad that you're here. In today's episode, I talk with Leslie Kim, the founder of Dynamite Starfish, a climbing-focused apparel company. We hear from Leslie about what is a Dynamite Starfish, making mistakes, humor and struggle, martial arts, money, the draw of swimming, lessons from injury about COVID, and how she made huge changes in her life. I really appreciate her take on business and structuring a life to include work, being outside, and community. But before we say hello to Leslie, remember to tell some friends about the podcast. Talking to these incredible athletes is a highlight of my week. Each one inspires me to get moving, both literally and metaphorically. I hope you find the same and spread the word. Now, let's get to it. Today's guest is rock climber, artist, and entrepreneur, Leslie Kim. In 2015, she started creating illustrations inspired by her travels to different rock climbing areas and soon combined that artwork with love for climbing and the community of climbing. She launched her apparel company, Dynamite Starfish. She is the sole owner and operator of Dynamite Starfish. She lives by the motto, try hard, have fun, care about the things that you love. Welcome, Leslie. It is really wonderful that you are here, and I look forward to talking about business, work life, climbing, and actually printing, too. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. The printing one, I didn't know anyone would be interested about that, but always happy to talk about it. Sure. I, I love printmaking. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, let's open up with an introduction to your company, and also for those who don't know what Dynamite Starfish is, describe that since it is so central to you and your art and also to your life. Of course. So dynamite starfish is a rock climbing term that I kind of stumbled upon on the internet. It's a move where you have all of your limbs outstretched and you're trying uh, kind of desperately for upward momentum. So you're holding on in a position that shouldn't really work out, but you're trying anyways and you have a low rate of success, but sometimes it works. And I chose that as the name of my business primarily because it made me laugh. And I felt like there's just something about humor that is healing and connects people and is just great for us to partake in. So I wanted to sort of inject some of that humor into what I do with my business because my drawings are also kind of funny and we make a lot of mistakes in life and also climbing is probably 99% failure. So there's a bit of all of that tied in too. The term dynamite starfish seems so applicable to our current situation with pandemic and everything else going on. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it's kind of always been applicable for me, which might be why when I first saw the term, I almost just like fell over on the floor laughing because I was trying to find a name for my business. And I'd come up, I'm by no means a great copywriter. And I had come up with all these phrases and names that were honestly pretty cheesy and they were kind of awful and um, I was kind of going back and forth with my friend who is a copywriter and when I told her the name Dynamite Starfish she also just fell on the ground laughing and was like I don't even care what it is but it has to be it and I think there's just something about the name that shows like a bit of the ridiculousness of the struggle but there's some form of tenacity there and yeah, I think it's been applicable to the way that 
the business has survived, especially this year. It's been quite a year. <laughs> and um, also just in the, the different ways that I've come to have the business at all. Because if you had asked me 10 years ago what I would be doing now, I never would have thought that I would have a business. I don't even think I would have said I would be happy or feeling mentally healthy or even just having a stable life. So I think it's it's kind of an homage to how trying hard and having fun and caring about what you love can be a good driver to get you somewhere in life that you might find more fulfilling than you did many years ago. Wow, there's a lot in there that I want to ask about. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned failure, something like 99% of, I can't remember exactly what you said, but you said there was a huge portion of life that's failure. I think that's so interesting to sort of acknowledge that from the get-go. Mm, I think that was a hard thing for me to learn, but once I learned it, it was really liberating because you realize that there's so much pressure to to reach certain achievement goals, especially in the culture and society that we have. And I think a lot of times not hitting those goals, and you see this in rock climbing as well, people get really hard on themselves. If they you know, think that they can get a certain grade or should be climbing a certain grade, but they encounter a climb that they, for some reason, can't climb, even within a grade range that they think they should be able to pull off. And I think it's a good metaphor for how we operate through life as well. We think we should be able to do certain things, and a lot of times we can't. And it's those moments where we can decide, okay, maybe I need to learn some new things and grow. Or you also have the option of getting really down and hard on yourself, but only one of those options is productive at all. But yeah, I think that there is more to be celebrated in failure than we are inclined to celebrate. I think we as a culture tend to celebrate accomplishments a lot more. I can't remember which podcast I heard it on, but they talked about how entrepreneurs also experience a very high degree of failure. And part of the reason why not a lot of people want to go into the world of business or being self-employed is because of the fear of that. And there is some of that failure that should really be, be celebrated because success kind of happens by chance, but failure is pretty much a given. And if you failed a number of times, in some way, you're kind of like a, like a warrior or a, a scout who's gone before and is able to bring back valuable information and help the community. But instead, you know, we put them down or say, oh, you weren't able to achieve whatever you set out to achieve. And I think that's just not true. I love training and I love process. I'm also an artist and I see a lot of similarity in the two is, you know, just, you know, showing up at the studio or showing up with your running shoes on. And I love that aspect of it. But I sometimes wonder if not focusing on outcome 
I am not as successful as I could be. Do you ever think about that in terms of what we were just talking about failure? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a balance to be had. I think, you know, there is sort of a joy in doing things only for enjoyment, but if we don't push our boundaries or, you know, want to do well, there's also maybe not much of a point. It's kind of a hobby. This just reminded me of something. I used to do martial arts like my entire life from the age of nine to, I mean, I still practice today, although without a lot of regularity. But in the art that I trained in the most, they said that there is a a difference between people who are hobbyists and true practitioners. I mean, the difference between that is really showing up and accepting your failures and all of that. But I think that might be kind of where the line is drawn with what you're talking about. If you're a true practitioner, I think you are pushing yourself. You are striving for your very best. Whereas if you're a hobbyist, you might just be dabbling in it here and there, doing it for fun. There's really no pressure at all. It's interesting, you know, the sports that you take part in, competition is not a huge component of it. I mean, I'm not saying there's no competition in climbing and martial arts, but that's not the foundation, I would say. That's very true. I used to do team sports and competitive sports because I'm an only child and my mother is also an only child. So when I was very young, she wanted to sort of put me in more social situations. So she thought, okay, team sports is going to be the way to do it. We're going to put this kid into softball, basketball, and you know, orchestra, like all these large group things. And for some reason, it just didn't really resonate with me. I tried to play softball and basketball, but, you know, either I just wasn't good at it or like it, it just didn't make sense to me. And the competition kind of gave me a lot of anxiety. But then I started swimming and there was something about it just being you and the water and the clock that made a lot of sense to me and I loved it. And swimming was actually the first sport that I really fell in love with. And sort of simultaneously, I started doing martial arts and I think I just really enjoyed the process of self-discovery and self-improvement much more than I did like winning a game, maybe even being part of a, a team. So I don't know if that's for better or for worse, but it was just the method that I found that worked best with my personality. So what kind of climbing activities are you doing now? And you mentioned that you're still doing martial arts. So what kind of training or activities are you doing? Well, with COVID, not too much. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's a part of the question. Um. But yeah, I'm still climbing. It's been hard to get out, especially with different partners, because, you know, we're just not really seeing people. But my domestic partner here at home, who it's funny because we were talking about the differences of team sports versus individual sports. He's very much a, a team sports kind of person, but he has sort of graciously agreed to go climbing with me. And so we've been climbing and it's been a really interesting journey to sort of teach someone how to climb and uh, go through that process of responsibility and double checking myself and, oh man, am I, am I showing this person the right skills? Are we doing this safely? 
all of that has been a great journey. So even though I've been climbing at kind of a, a low physical level, I feel like it's pushing me psychologically in some different ways, which is, is nice. Well, let's get back to your business. I do want to ask about printing and I'm mostly interested because you're doing it all yourself, I understand, or most of it anyway, you're doing it all yourself. So describe the operation. Sure. Oh, the operation's crazy. I'm sitting in the second bedroom of our apartment right now, which is also the warehouse, which is also, I suppose, some part of the production process. But essentially, I never really wanted to have a big production or I never even really wanted to have a business at all. I just had a couple of drawings that I made that were about climbing and some friends really liked them. They're like, hey, you should print these on t-shirts. And I was like, no way. That sounds like such a terrible thing to do. Like, think about all the sizes and the colors people are going to want. Like, absolutely not. And I held off on it. And I actually uploaded it to a website called Society6, where you can upload any artwork. And if someone orders it, they will happily print it for you and send it out. And then I saw someone wearing one of my shirts and I saw the print quality and I was like, oh my God, I don't like that. I had taken printmaking for a couple of semesters in college. It was something that I just loved. And I loved screen printing. And ever since I took that screen printing class, my art had always been geared towards screen printing, which is why so many people had always said, you should put it on shirts. So the very first print round, I actually hired a friend to do it for me. He was running a screen printing company in Orange County. And he had been a good friend of mine since college. I was like, hey, can you print these for me? And he did. And it cost me so much. It was like $500 or something. And I was like, oh, my God, there's no way that this is ever going to pay out. <laughs> this is sustainable at all. So I had this one color press that I had used for just small, like, fine art prints at home. So I started using that with water-based inks, which I don't know if any of your listeners will be familiar with, but especially in a dry climate, you need to be printing every 20, 30 seconds or so, or else the ink jams up in the screen. And you got to do this whole process of washing it out, and you don't know if the next print is going to be faded, and you end up with quite a lot of mistakes. But I was printing in the living room of my apartment for quite some time, and the very first design I had has like a little blood spot on a hand. And I was hand painting those in and, you know, kind of drying these with a heat gun. And it was quite a, <laughs> <laughs> it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And it was like a, a dynamite starfish type of attempt to, to get something done. And, you know, since then, it's like you do something where the process is so hard and so ridiculous that you realize, okay, there has to be a better way to do this. So um, I actually found a studio out here in L.A. that rents time out to people who know how to print. And I was able to move my operation over there. And for the most part, that's still what I do. I'm glad you mentioned sort of the financial stability or sustainability of what you're doing. And you're doing work that you love and work that you believe in. And we'll talk about how you support environmental organizations. Do you worry about the financial sustainability long term? I mean, the life of an artist is not always easy. 
you know, it's great to be a poor starving artist when you're in your 30s, but it gets a little old, you know, two decades from now. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm 35 and it, it's getting old. You know, I think that you have to find a way of life that's sustainable for you. And that's something that is sort of my next goal. And I think when I was younger, and especially when I had first started Dynamite Starfish, I was really just, I mean, I was so scared to ask people for money. You know, people would want to buy a shirt and I'd be like, oh my God, really? Like, you're willing to to give me money for this this thing that I made? Like, you know, I'd almost rather give it to them for free. And you know, it's funny because one of my printmaking instructors in college had kind of scolded me for that. And she was like, why are you only charging five to $10 for this print? Like you made it and it's beautiful and it's three colors and it took so much time. Like you should be charging a lot more. And I think a big part of that was like an insecurity in the value of my work. You know, as you know, I get older and life becomes more serious. I think I realized the gravity of needing to have a financially sustainable work system. So my next goal is really just trying to have my company be financially sustainable because up until now, it was sort of just this like fun thing that I did on the side. And maybe it was about a year, year and a half ago, because I had an injury from climbing, really just poured all of my attention into growing the business. And I I learned pretty soon after I had started putting more time into it, hey, if I actually try hard at this thing, it kind of works for me. (laughs) And I, I started slowly at that point to sort of get over my fear of, I guess, charging for things that I made and, you know, being a little bit more outgoing with marketing. And, you know, I also do freelance design. That's my staple income source. And then Dynamite Starfish is sort of my supplemental, very unpredictable income source. But I do see it having a great deal of potential. So one of the things I'm working on this year is is really, okay, how do I grow my business to a place where it can sustain me in a reasonable way? I don't have to make a killing, but I would definitely like to make a living. And I've also had a good number of people who are interested in doing work for me, whether that's freelance or even full time. And I would really love to grow my business to a point where I could give someone a job that sustains them and, you know, gives them something to do that they're proud of, that they're, they're happy to do every day. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the word sustainable is thrown around in so many ways and, it means so many different things to everyone. And it's kind of in the world of business, like one of those impossible things to reach. But yeah, you know, like I was talking about, I'd love to give other people a chance to work at a job that they believe in and love. Because I've had people reach out and say, Hey, I love your business. Do you need any help? Like, I really want to work for you. Up until this point, you know, have always said, you know, maybe there's you know, some small thing you can do for me for like, you know, a bit of an hourly fee, but I haven't been able to give anyone consistent work. You know, part of that is I myself haven't gotten any consistent income out of it. So it's something that I'm really trying for. But I also want the business to be sustainable in the sense that we're not selling sort of like 
fast and quick ways to to gain money or attention. I think that especially when it comes to the the world of selling t-shirts, we have this impulse to put stuff on t-shirts that's like inflammatory or attention grabby or or sort of not a great mindset, but it looks good on a t-shirt, so we're going to wear it and haha, we'll have a laugh. And I know that's sort of like the point of having a t-shirt company for some people, but I really wanted to use it as a platform to spread good ideas. So if you look at the breadth of artwork that I have that's put on t-shirts, a lot of it is, you know, sort of encouraging under the theme of living in a way that's connected to nature, enjoying nature, sort of the blissfulness of nature. So I guess conceptually, I also want it to be sustainable in that sense. And, you know, there's also other forms of sustainability that I would love to get into, such as like using recycled fabrics or, you know, just better materials. And those are things that are always researching and I recently did a limited edition series with a friend of mine who's a climbing guide, and he is very inspired by principles like Leave No Trace, and we had a lot of conversations about how we can sort of guide the mindset of our audience to be more, to just be more aware of outdoor ethics. We wanted to actually print the Leave No Trace principles on the shirt but Leave No Trace, the organization, never got back to us. So we still wanted to make a shirt that was about outdoor ethics. So we put a drawing of mountains on the back and we said, exist ethically. And we had this like super cool skeleton hand on the front with uh, like hot pink tendon tape. And it was just a call for climbers to think about what it meant to them to exist ethically. And then you could also get this shirt that was printed on 100% recycled materials to sort of remember that. I think a big part of my business's mission is really to get people to think about what's important to them. You know, we also donate a portion of our profits and work with certain nonprofits to help kind of get that education out there as well. So I'll like donate artwork or print t-shirts for an organization or something like that, you know, to get the message of hey, like, we should be treating the environment well. And in that regard, also other people and ourselves. And it's very important to me. And now just a quick break to say that Hear Her Sports is now an affiliate of Bookshop, an online bookstore supporting local independent bookstores. When you order books from hearhersports.com forward slash books, we get a small percentage of the total sale. We put together a fun list of books recommended by our guests, written by our guests, or related to an episode. But there's no need to stick to the list once you're on Hear Her Sports store page. All of your purchases support the show, and we will thank you very much. That website again is hearhersports.com forward slash books. This conversation is so interesting because for me, it always gets into this web of thoughts of like, you know, when you're making stuff, you're adding stuff to the world. And for me as an artist, that's always a question. I've recently changed my practice because I was tired of adding so much volume. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I don't really have a question. I'm just, <laughs> just commenting. <laughs> 
it's hard to exist ethically. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree. It's so hard. You know, part of the reason why a lot of the artwork I do is also digital now, because I feel like there's a message that I want to get out. But, you know, like you said, I don't want to put another thing out into the world. So the majority of artwork that I put out is just digital for people to look at. And that's kind of been a nice like ease on my conscience. But with the t-shirt thing, you know, I do have a bit of a of a hang up about that, which is why I wanted to experiment with the recycled materials. And I think that was actually an awesome way to go. The company that I use is I think called Recover Brands. And they recycle something like eight water bottles and turn it into a shirt. I like that method a lot. They don't really offer a lot of color options. I don't know. It kind of felt good to go that way. And another route that I'm going as well is I'm starting to experiment with sort of one-off printing, where I only print a shirt if someone orders one, which is quite a logistics you know, it, it's some, certainly something to work out, but I like that idea as well. It's just not holding a ton of inventory. Right, right. I didn't mean to question your, your practice. Oh, I question myself all the time. I actually made a drawing. I have this like running project called like 100 Drawings About Climbing. And one of the drawings that I had made was just these two banners that kind of oppose each other. And it said, pointless commodities for pointless activities and it was something that I was really struggling pretty hard with at the time it was like you know I'm, I'm making these these shirts which is you know kind of a pointless commodity for an activity like rock climbing which is kind of a pointless activity I struggle with a lot of those philosophical things I think part of the reason why, or actually it, it is the reason why that I donate some of the profits to organizations like the Access Fund or Friends of Joshua Tree is because I used to make my shirts kind of as a, a tribute to the places that I climbed and really enjoyed. So the very first series of shirts was I had a shirt specifically for Joshua Tree and one specifically for Bishop, both big climbing areas in California. And, you know, after I had made the artwork, I thought like, you know, these are cool, but how could I possibly live with the fact that I got other people into this area and I don't know if they trashed the place. I don't know if they know anything about outdoor ethics. And at the time I hardly did either, but I thought, you know, it's just, it's not okay. So I contacted any organization I could find that was doing conservation work on the ground. And, you know, I didn't have a single dollar to give them at that point, but we had some conversations about how I could contribute, what they're doing. I just decided at that point that, you know, there's no way I could sell a shirt celebrating Joshua Tree without giving any of it back to actually Joshua Tree. So that became part of the business model. That's cool. You know, this all sounds very generational. I mean, not just you're caring about the environment, but also thinking about these bigger philosophical issues of work environment and supporting others and not needing to make a killing, but wanting to support yourself. So you're, you know, you have health care and food and rent and whatnot. I guess I hadn't really thought about that. My parents are very old. 
I always tell people as a joke that in my soul, I'm like a 55 year old man. Um, <laughs> my, my father is, oh God, I think he's like 81 and my mom is in her mid seventies. And I also grew up with my grandmother and my great grandmother all living in the same house. So I was always around just these old people. I don't know how it came to be that way, but my mother, she worked at a medical lab and was pretty high earner, but she had always kind of imparted in me the belief that you didn't need a lot of money to survive. I mean, they're also North Korean refugees, so they kind of came to America with like zero dollars and uh, were able to make it work. So I think that part of that philosophy is also their survival mechanism and they taught me that a lot really early on was just like you don't you don't need money be grateful for the air you breathe and if you have food in your fridge you know that's more than a lot of people can ask for that's really interesting and your article the lineage about your upbringing and history was really fascinating i loved it oh thank you one of the things i've been thinking about and i do think it relates to what we've been talking about is you know, why is sports or physical activity so important now? What about getting outside, being in nature? Oh, it's so important. <laughs> it's, it's something that I didn't really grow up with. When I was a kid, we would occasionally go on a, a camping trip or something, but it was always to some huge group campground that was like really crowded. And I don't think I enjoyed it. And I had no connection to like the wilderness or the backcountry at all. I started backpacking actually with an ex-boyfriend who, it, it was not a good relationship, but we would go backpacking to the same place almost every weekend. And we'd just do these quick little two or three day hikes down the mountain. And it was really amazing just to watch it change. I think we went for about two or three years, but we did it so often that you would see the river move and you would see that sometimes you'd see a lot of ladybugs and sometimes you wouldn't. And I think that really just got me to notice what was going on in the world, kind of outside of my head. And, you know, after that relationship ended and I didn't backpack anymore, and part of it was because the actual relationship was so bad. I wanted to stay away from everything that we had done together. And backpacking and hiking was one of those things. So I kind of went into my little artist hole. And I lived in this tiny studio apartment with like zero furniture. All I did was just create art. And I was in my head all the time. And I was painting. I had no internet. I had no TV. So it was really just all I did. And I was working as well at a graphic design studio. And so all of my time was spent in these sort of like creative dungeons. It was like dark and you're in your head and there's no light. <laughs> at some point I realized, you know, I can't live this life. I have to get out and move. I have to exercise. I got to do something with my body. So at that point, I found rock climbing again. Uh, it was something that I'd always kind of loved and wanted to do, but just didn't really have the funds or there wasn't a rock climbing gym in my area. 
And around that time, there were a few gyms that opened up in my neighborhood. So I figured like, oh, okay, I'll go check it out. And I have a job so I can actually pay for this. That got me into doing like natural movements again, because at the time I wasn't really training in martial arts either. I was really just hyper-focused on work and making art. Once I started to move again, I realized that I felt better and I was a more confident person, you know, being especially in the climbing gym environment. It's very open. It's very social. So I started meeting other people who climbed and then going on climbing trips and going on these, you know, five hour road trips with people you had met in the parking lot a day ago. (laughs) It kind of opened up the world for me. I realized you know, like we're meant to be outside and we're meant to be doing these natural movements. And it's been quite a journey since then because I think the average gym to crag experience is sort of you bring the gym experience outside. So there's still a lot of ego and there's not much connection with or respect for the natural environment. And it really wasn't until I got my climbing injury where I had just everything in my body was angry from climbing. I wasn't doing the proper training. I wasn't feeding myself correctly. And I was just climbing way too much. It just felt extreme fatigue. I had tendonitis everywhere, which turned into tendinopathy. It wasn't until my body forced me to stop climbing. I realized how important it was to actually go out and be in nature. Yeah, it it was a big shift for me. And after that, the way that I approached climbing altogether really changed because I realized it's, it's not about me. <laughs> it's not about like me achieving my climbing goal or needing to climb a certain grade. And that's nice, but it, it really is about doing this thing with the goal of self-improvement that's outside and in accordance with the natural world. You've made a lot of reference to big changes in your life. How have you made those happen? I mean, they seem like pretty significant foundational shifts. Is that true? Yeah, it is true. <laughs> I don't I don't know how that happens for me. Like maybe in some way I am lucky to be able to do that. But I think, yeah, huh. <laughs> I guess that's a tough one. I think... I think I've always wanted, I've just wanted to live like a life that was true to myself and I guess true to the world as well. If you live in that way, the more that you learn, the more you're inspired to change something about the way that you live. I think that if we don't learn new information, then we don't update. And sometimes it's it's hard when the new information is counter to what you currently know. But I think if you're willing to learn the new information and have the critical thinking ability to decide for yourself whether that's a direction that you think you should go in or not, then you can make some changes for the better. Yeah, you can also make changes for the worse. <laughs> but they don't feel good. So there's a lot of like, you know, honing your personal radar for like, is this a good decision for me? Is it not? I think it gets easier over time. I've made some really bad changes in the past. 
<laughs> absolutely bad news. I'm really interested in that aspect of what's happened in your life and how you've ended up here. And I wish I could figure out a good question to ask about, <laughs> you know, like, what was the transition like? I mean, it just, because I think once you've gone through the transition, it looks like, oh, yeah, I did that. But of course, <laughs> that's not what it really is like as it's going on. So, yeah, again, I wish I could ask a question that would sort of take us back to that spot and like how, you know, you got rid of your old thoughts and changed yourself. Because again, it seems like you've made just enormous changes in your life. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the first time you do it is the hardest. And then after that, it, it becomes much easier. But uh, the first time, it, it felt insane. I thought I might lose my life. I thought um, <laughs> I thought that I, I might be uh, seriously crazy. There was also a physical response where I was having panic attacks all the time. Yeah, I don't know how to how to explain that one in, in any brief way, but hard, the hardest thing that I've ever done. But after that, you know, less hard. And then after that, less hard. Do you remember the moment that you were like, I got to change? Yes. So I had been kind of stuck in a five-year emotionally and occasionally physically abusive relationship. And it was manipulative in the way that I kind of couldn't leave. And then finally things got so bad that, you know, the, the relationship was over. I was so happy that it was over that I couldn't control myself. And it was like all of my emotionality was, was just wrong. <laughs> it was like having the wrong feelings at the wrong time. Everything was out of whack. I started to realize at that point that that I had in some way allowed this to happen. Like I had allowed people to treat me in such a way that was, that was so hurtful. And why did that happen? And I started going to therapy. I started really thinking about this. I think from then on, like I knew that, I knew that I was probably going to lose my life if I didn't figure it out. And so it really did become like a life or death situation at that point. I was not willing to ever go back to the type of relationship that I was in. So it was one of those things where I really just had my back against the wall and was like, I either have to go forward, I have to change some things, or I'm done for. <laughs> well, thank you for telling us that. Sure. <laughs> I hope that wasn't like too much of a downer. <laughs> no, no. I certainly hope that we all don't have to get our back to the wall to make changes. <laughs> oh my God. I wish that on no <laughs> It's often that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, that's how it happens for a lot of people. You know, God, it's awful, but it, it, it's part of life. Yeah. I think what's hard making changes is breaking away from past habits oh yeah I think I've been experiencing so much of that especially the past year or two I mean COVID was a crazy change that we all had to deal with it affected us all in many different ways you know my my partner and I actually started talking about this as soon as COVID hit about how it was going to change people 
because we had both been through things like injuries where you're really forced to sit down and sit with yourself and think about the direction that your life is going and you're not able to do any of those things that normally distract you from those topics. So we knew it was going to be huge. And I think it, it really was and still is. I feel like I got a little off topic there. but No, actually, that was a great segue <laughs> because I do want to ask you about what changes have you seen in your community and your climbing community as a result of the pandemic? At least here in Cleveland, we're seeing a lot more people getting out. But anyway, I'm interested in what you're experiencing there. Yeah, you know, I haven't been in the gym at all since COVID hit. My membership is still on hold and I see that they're open and I see that they're allowing a limited number of people to come and climb. But, you know, my motivation for climbing in the gym has just been pretty low. I'd love to get outside and I do. I have certainly seen that the outdoor areas have been getting more and more crowded, although it's not so much of a personal experience for me because I just haven't, I haven't been going there either. Like I see on Instagram or something where there's like a million people there on the weekend. I'm like, no, nah, I just won't go there. So, you know, there's a climbing area that's about 20 minutes away from our place. And, you know, on a good afternoon, we're just like, oh, I want to go check it out. And if there's no one there, we'll climb. And if there's a bunch of people there, we'll just go do something else. But community is important to you. And so how are you staying connected? Yeah, it's it's just been like a big shift. And I haven't really thought too much about this in any kind of like coherent way. It's been hard to not have the climbing community. I used to just show up at the gym and I'd see friends and catch up and stuff like that. And I think there's still some of that that I do. Like I went to a baby shower that was over Zoom. <laughs> you know, there's just a lot of texting, I guess, and trying to keep up with people. And when I have time, I'll get on a phone call. But yeah, just the the sort of chance encounters and all of that have gone away. And that's been actually really one of the most difficult things to deal with pandemic-wise. But, you know, we have the internet, we have our phones. It's not ideal, but it's how I'm getting by with the community aspect, I suppose. And to be honest, I think there are some days where like my thumbs just hurt because I can't text anymore. (laughs) And then there's also just finding a balance between that because, you know, being on social media for a long time is is super unhealthy for me mentally, but I do want to kind of catch up with my friends. So I try to get on sometimes. What about physical activity informs the rest of your life? So I used to live in this way where I thought physical activity was separate from my life. Like I had, I had a time for doing my work and I had a, a separate time for working out. And it was like, well, I guess working out was really the only activity that I did. Or climbing, which I had also considered working out at that time. But it was something you did like on the evenings after work. It was like an allotted time kind of thing. But, you know, as of recently, and a lot of this really is thanks to meeting my partner, I've really just tried to integrate movement with just the like daily routine of my life. I've gone from like considering exercise and working out and movement as something that's not necessary, but like a bonus to my life that I did during these allotted blocks of time. 
And now it's something where, you know, I do some stretches, I do some meditation in the morning, and that helps me. It actually helps me do my work. And then midday, I'll get out and maybe try to go. We're very lucky. We live like 15 minutes away from the beach. So I go to the beach and go for a swim in the ocean, and then I'll come back. And that kind of gives me a reset so I can continue to do my work. And then, you know, like maybe do a home workout or go for a walk in the evening. And that kind of just like finishes up the day for me. So it's become something that I just try to integrate in my day. And yeah, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of that is really thanks to my partner, who's like a holistic posture therapist. And he's someone who really just taught me that it's not good for your mental or physical health to be kind of hunched over at the computer all day. And then you rush to the climbing gym in a car that's also not good for your body. And then you start climbing without really warming up. And it is how I ended up with my injuries. (laughs) And it's something that, you know, he firmly believes in. It's been one of the hardest things to change my mind about, but it's working. (laughs) Cool. It must be nice to have somebody like that in the house. <laughs> oh, it's not. <laughs> it's like you don't want to be reminded about what's good for you all the time. Well, there is that. <laughs> but it's good for me. But it's yeah. fine. Well, thank you so much. But before we wrap up, is there anything I didn't get to or that you think is really important that you want to let people know about? Hmm. Well, I guess something that I think is important that I don't know if we like touched on a huge amount, but uh, I think that a lot of people who reach out to me about my business or my journey and say like, Hey, I think what you're doing is cool are generally people who are sort of going through like a circuitous path in life or aren't sure if they want to take this path or that path. And um, my advice to them is always just do what you can to get to know yourself And this is something that I also have learned a lot from the different martial arts that I've done. But really, the way to finding the happiness and fulfillment that you want in life is to know yourself first and foremost. I think that might be the one thing that has been most like guiding and impactful for me. And hopefully that is also guiding and impactful for someone else. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And you're really an inspiration with what you're doing with supporting the environment and creating a great business. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I'm just like one person doing what I can, but thank you so much. appreciate it. A big thank you to Leslie. Find out more about her and Dynamite Starfish at dynamitestarfish.com. Or just head right over to her episode page at hearhersports.com, where you can find that link to her website, along with links of some of the things we talked about, including her article, The Lineage, about, well, her lineage. It's an excellent read. And speaking of reading, Leslie sent me her top three books of the year, which includes Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst by Robert Sapolsky. You can find all three of her recommendations on our bookshop page at hearhersports.com, forward slash books. There's always great stuff coming up in the next episodes, so subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so they come directly to your phone. While 44% of athletes are women, 
only 4% of the media coverage is about women. Here, Her Sports aims to shift the scale while inspiring women to be their best. Until next time, bye-bye. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.